Thanks for joining me, Pete Holtzman, for the Credentials Only Podcast, where you are introduced to people who work in sports. Today's guest is Paul Woody, the Vice President of Business Development for the Professional Rodeo Cowboys Association. In this episode, Paul provides a great deal of insight into how he goes about his sales work. You have to find how you differentiate yourself, either as the salesperson or as the entertainment option. You have to tell that story and believe it, that what you can offer, nobody else can offer. Prior to working in rodeo, Paul was involved in college athletics through IMG. Being an outside contractor at at a university, you are dependent on positive relationships with university officials. Um, Yes, you are contractually, you have certain rights and you've been hired and brought in as the outside rights holder to run those things. But if somebody wanted to make your life not easy, they could make it not easy. Unlike his rodeo work or his time spent at Las Vegas Motor Speedway, team success had the potential to impact sales success in those college roles. If you can deliver what a client wants, the winning matters less. Paul also shares the best way to understand what that client wants. Every person that you are pitching or talking to, they're so much more passionate than you are about what they do. If they're a business owner, if they're a CMO, if they're a VP of this, or, or they're the marketing director, they are so much more passionate about their entity than you ever will be. And so you, you have to listen and they'll give you the answers to the test. Before we get started, please take a moment to leave a rating or review wherever you are listening and to follow Credentials Only on social media. Show notes can be found on our website, credentialsonly.com, where you can also sign up for our mailing list. Without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Paul Woody. Paul, thank you so much for joining me. Let's go back to school. What is your education background? Too much, I think, would be the best way to put that. Uh, I, I started in undergrad as a as a physics major. Funny enough, I I wanted to be an engineer and had my heart set on that, and that's why I went to school. And uh, after a couple of years of too many labs and uh, too many hard math courses, I, I determined that's not what I wanted to do. And we hired an athletic director at this small, small school in Arkansas that I went to. It's uh, Hendricks College in Hendricks Conway, College. Arkansas. All right. And, and we hired an athletic director and he wasn't a football coach or a basketball coach. And I didn't, I didn't know that you could work in athletics and not be one of those two things. So I uh, ran into him in the bathroom actually. And I said, Mr. Powell, Mr. Powell, what, uh, I, how did you get to do this? This is awesome. And he said, well, uh, let's not talk in the, in the restroom. Let's set a meeting up with my assistant. And, uh, I, he, he told me about his path and he said, you know, you, you, you've got to find your niche. You got to find your passion. And he suggested I go to grad school and, um, so I, I finished out my physics degree, which is always a good conversation starter, but uh, finished that and then went and got my MBA and my master's of sports administration from Ohio University and uh, went off on what I thought was going to be an illustrious career in college athletics. And uh, that, that's not always the, the way you write it. 
but I, I kept my education going and I ended up earning my PhD in public affairs. So wrote my, wrote my dissertation on the uh, impact of successful division one athletics on uh, social capital of urban areas. So basically trying to give ammunition to athletic directors and city officials on why they should joint plan and joint fund athletic venues in urban settings. Um, and so it was a, it, it still is an interesting topic to this day and something I have a passion for, uh, the, the why, you know, it's, it's, people always look at the economic impact of athletics, but it's the social capital of athletics. Um, but similar to finding out I didn't want to be an engineer, I found out that college athletics and trying to become an athletic director is uh, sometimes something I wouldn't wish on my greatest enemy. Uh, there's a lot of, a lot of pressure, a lot of things that you don't have any control over and, and being the consummate salesperson, I, had a great passion for controlling my own destiny and being compensated for such. And so that's how I've uh, put together my, you know, 15 year career in, in the sports sponsorship sales and partnerships. So. Have you heard from any schools or cities or organizations referring to your dissertation, using that as a, a, a you know, a piece of their tool chest as they're fighting for something in their community? Mm -hmm. You know, every month I actually get a uh, readership report from the UNLV uh, school library and uh, consistently between 75 and 125 folks are downloading and reading the, the, uh, the piece every month. Um, I don't know if people are using it to, uh, to, to their benefit or to their detriment, um, but I've not had any specific conversations. I've had some some coffee conversations and people who are doing other research that are interested in what I did. Um, but it's, uh, it's, it's something that I think makes sense. And when you're a, when you're a sales guy, it's about trying to put it in the most direct way as possible, which is why I probably don't fit necessarily in academia is I, I don't like to hear myself spin yarn. Um, it's, it's about getting to the point and telling somebody what I believe. For those who are curious, I, I will find the link to that dissertation, and I'll include that in the show notes on credentialsonly.com. Uh, there's another little piece of information regarding this PhD. Um, how long did it take you to earn? Uh, it was nine years. I paid a lot of tuition. It took me nine years. Uh, you know, if you're not if you're not a full time student uh, who's being held accountable by other people on campus. I think that's the, the less traveled way of finishing your, your PhD. But I did, I started in uh, 06 and, and didn't graduate into, until 2015. So it took me nine years of, of work and, and class and bang that six hours of tuition every month or every uh, semester. And doing that though, while having full-time jobs, how did you balance that? Cause I think there are a lot of people who get into working in sports and especially a lot of that was time spent in collegiate athletics, which is just a ton of nights and weekends who probably get to a barrier of there's no way I could also get that master's even with how many online programs, everything there are, there's that barrier there. How did you fight through that and, and stick with it for that long to see it through? 
You know, I've always been uh, somebody who who tries to keep myself busy because uh, I think the saying is idle hands are the devil's playground. And so if if I'm not constantly involved in striving to do things to, to better myself, I I find that I feel unfulfilled. So I I continued to work towards that and did the 15 minutes a day. Um, and I actually learned a lot of lessons through that PhD program that helped me in sales. Um, you know, I think when you are the, the person representing a, a team or an organization in the sales process, you're looked at as the expert and you always try and hurry through your thoughts and speak quickly. And that, that never serves you well. Uh, I've come to find if you aren't thoughtful and intentional in what you're saying, and you'll never be punished for pausing before answering a question and making sure that you have intention behind what you, what you say. And, and so I do think that that, that was only learned through too many years of, of academic experience. Were there other things between public affairs and obviously the OU mafia, as, as it's lovingly called by those of you who belong um, in the sport admin program? Obviously, that's very applicable to what you've done with your career, but through the public affairs, but also through that physics degree. Are there things that have helped you beyond just that thoughtfulness and intention? You know, I, I, I do think that people can get lost in uh, trying to sound, I don't want to say smarter than they are, but there is uh, a lot of times there is a, a lost art of getting to the point of what you're trying to say. People, people are fearful of making a statement because they, they worry about what the person that they're speaking with is going to think of that statement. Um, but so many times that's the best way to get to a resolution, whether it is in sales or it's in, in another, in another, uh, piece of the sports world it's get to the point you know we've all we are all doing uh more with less right now especially after the last 18 months um we all have picked up additional job roles and responsibilities and we don't have the luxury to not get to the point and so when you're in you know when when you when you go through the physics world or you go through any of my other experiences it's economy of time and get to the point. Um, it, it helps. It helps everyone. And I, and I realize I'm saying that while speaking on a podcast. And the job of a podcast is to <laughs> fill an allotted amount of time and and be entertaining for other people. But uh, that, that's what I always try and do in my uh, verbal communication and my written communication is make sure that the point of what I'm saying is clear and obvious. Um, I don't want someone to be able to come away from that and think I meant anything other than what I meant. You touched on your time working in college sports, and I'd like to talk a little bit about that experience. And one of the unique things about it for you is you came in what feels like to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, pretty early in the time in which these outside entities were getting embedded in the athletic departments. Every athletic department used to do their own sales. And you worked for IMG to go 
to these schools. What is that relationship like? And was it in the early days? How was that received, if it was, to have an IMG coming in to work in these athletic departments? Uh, you know, even even one step further, when I first got hired at UNLV, uh, it was with ISP and their mm. significant growth period. Um, and not long after getting hired for Ben Sutton and, and ISP and feeling like I was I was with the, you know, the family, you know, with the ISP family, then there was the, the merger with IMG and a shift in culture, not not for the better or for the worse it's just a shift um and and going through that the you know I, I was at three significantly different feeling universities um unlv which is kind of a it's a state school but there is a commuter aspect to unlv uh then to ohio university as the general manager and that's a s large state school but everybody lives it's a small town and everybody Eat, sleeps, breathes. Ohio, uh, Ohio University. While they while they're in Athens, and then going to a service academy, and truly understanding the meaning behind uh, service before self, as you interact with, um, you know, six hundred cadet athletes, and the the mission for what those guys and gals are going to school school for, is so much greater than the fields of friendly strife, as they like to say. Um, and so each of those places I was able to learn and see a different way than an athletic department was led. Um, but every single one of those places, it was about personalities and being an outside contractor at, at, at a university, you are dependent on positive relationships with university officials. Um, yes, you are contractually, you have certain rights and you've been hired and brought in as the outside rights holder to run those things. But if somebody wanted to make your life uh, not easy, they could make it not easy. Um, if somebody you had a great relationship with, they would do you favors and make sure that, that your job as, as a stake, stakeholder, rights holder was, uh, was easier. So it's all about the personalities. And that, that's why... You can say you work for Learfield IMG and there's 200 universities, but I promise you there's not a single one of those university relationships that's the same uh, because of the people employed by the rights holder and the people employed by the university. And it seems that in particular for college athletics, so much of it is different than you'd see in a lot of other areas because there's that personal connection, whether it's with alumni or donors, but also so much of their sponsorship base is local. It's a local car dealer. It's, it's that community. You really have to be embedded. Did that make it a challenge to come in as that outside party to infiltrate that sometimes? Um, it, it, it made it, it made it difficult if you weren't properly equipped. Um, if, if somebody had in their mind uh, that it was going to be run like a professional organization, a professional team, and they came in and they tried to bulldog their, their way through the things, it does not work. It, you have to be a relationship seller. You have to be a, a relationship uh, instigator, if you will. You have to want to build those relationships. 
And, you know, I, I was driving an example of that is you have to feel that the people in that town believe you believe. Um, and, you know, I, I was driving a BMW when I lived in Las Vegas and I got hired to move to Athens, Ohio. And our regional VP at the time said, what kind of car do you drive? And I told him, I was like, oh, you know, uh, BMW 3 Series. And he says, okay, you can't drive that in Athens. Uh, you, you have to find something because if you, if you show up in that in, in, a, in southeastern Ohio, you're, gonna, you're, you're not going to make very many friends. So it was about truly believing the mission, not just acting the role, but you got to believe, uh, believe in the mission that the university does. And if you can do that, it's, it's not like unlike learning a language and, uh, you know, immersive training where you go and live in a different country and you learn the language, it gets picked up quickly. A service academy probably is very unique in that regard. And that was your longest stint was at Air Force Academy. What is it like to be in college athletics at a service academy? If you believe it, it's awesome. I mean, I got to fly on, you know, C-17. I got to go to the White House twice. I got to do things and be around <clears throat> opportunities that, that most people never got to be around. Um, and it was, it was an easy sell because everyone wanted to take a call from the Air Force Academy. Um, it was an easy sell because uh, winning was not at the forefront. You know, people go to those games because they believe in the mission. They're not necessarily only going because, well, Air Force has a shot at, at, a, at a conference title. Now, don't get me wrong. The people that bleed Air Force Blue care greatly about that. But the corporate partners who support the Air Force Academy, it's not about winning. It's about supporting the cadets, supporting the academy. In college athletics, how important is that uh, uh, traditional, you know, that Air Force probably being the exception, is that winning and, and uh, getting an NCAA tournament run or a bowl game? Uh, momentum matters. Um, I, I, you know, at Ohio, we beat Penn State. Uh, you know, Frank Solich went in and, and, and we won in State College, and that was amazing. And sales immediately were, were lifted. Uh, you know, same thing in the second year, we went to the Sweet 16. Winning matters um, for the momentum. Uh, if you can deliver uh, the the, if you can deliver what a client wants, the winning matters less. But the momentum does significantly impact the 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 ability for you to uh, draw that momentum. And and you know one of one of my old bosses used to say, just sign one deal a week. You know. Don't doesn't have to be a big deal. Sign one deal a week and keep that momentum going. And so when you have that momentum from the, the product on the field, it helps on the sales side um, to keep your momentum moving the right direction. Your time in college athletics was almost a full decade. How would you describe the industry when you left it compared to when you started in it in 2010? See, I don't know if there's a significant difference in the industry 
as much as my understanding of the industry is probably greater after 10 years. Um, you know, I, I don't know that I could say that, that the, the gap between certain universities and other universities is any larger now than it was then. There is still, still a significant gap and a significant uh, appearance of a gap. Um, you know, on any given day, most of those teams in, in, in one area could, could pop up and beat some of those other teams. But um, to me, I think at the beginning of that 10 years, I truly believe that UNLV could compete and should be held in the same regard as everybody else in the country. You know, we watched Jimmer Fredette and Kawhi Leonard play for San Diego State and BYU, and I'd get in, I'd get in Twitter arguments or, or, or bar conversations with buddies who worked at larger universities, and they just couldn't see what I was seeing, and I just couldn't understand it. Um, but then you go across the country, and, and, and my career never took me to a Power Five, so uh, it's, a, it's – the gap is real and I don't think it will ever, I don't think it will ever go back to every team can compete in every sport. Um, it's also, I, now that I've gotten out, I appreciate some things about not being in college athletics. You know, there is uh, always, there's always a feeling of, hesitation when you talk to people and say, are they people who work in the, in college athletics now, are they truly in it for the right reason? Um, and I don't fault anybody for career progression and the way that the industry is, is structured right now. Uh, but it is, it's a different, it's a different beast. You know, it's a professional sports organization now. It's no longer, you know, the, the sales pitch we always used to say is nobody wears, uh, you know, nobody graduates from Dallas Cowboys University, but they graduate from Ohio University. And I, I still have that deep down belief, but I also don't think that outside of the top 20 programs in America that it has the same feeling. Uh, so that's a, that's a roundabout way of answering the question. I don't think it probably does, but uh, you learn a lot through a decade in, in college athletics. Um, but I still, I still lean on. It's the people uh, there is, there are the people that are behind the scenes. There are the deputy ADs. There are the, the people that have 20 year careers at institutions that those are the people I believe in. And I think are doing it because they still believe the original purpose of college athletics, which was to provide student athletes an opportunity to, to receive an education that they would otherwise not, not be afforded. Um, and I don't think that that's, it's that way everywhere. You've been out of college athletics for a couple of years and something that has come on really since you left is the name image and likeness having been 10 years in college athletics on the sponsorship side, what do you envision and see happening with the NIL coming on 
Um, I think that it will further the gap that I referred to. Um, I don't think that that's the interesting thing is that it's being, it's being portrayed as a leveling of the playing field option and that every student should have the opportunity to uh, improve their, their way of life through their own name, image, and likeness. Um, I am not naive enough to think that that, that in practice, that's what's going to happen. It will not be the, the student athletes who uh, drive the, the goodwill and the passion at universities will benefit. And the, there will be segments of college athletics that will get um, significantly negatively impacted. Uh, which is, you know, it's kind of interesting because I live in a capitalistic role in sponsorship sales uh, where I'm always trying to make sure that there is an ROI for my partners. And so it's hard for me to say it's wrong that NIL is coming and doing what it's going to do, but I get it. You know, there's no reason why, uh, there's no reason why a, individual or corporate partner should feel like they have to support 17 programs when the warm fuzzies don't pay the bills and don't allow you to grow your business. It's, it's about, you know, it's about selling more hamburgers. So the people that will help businesses sell more hamburgers will benefit from this. And that's right. And just the people who, don't do that. I, I, I hope that there are still good-hearted uh, people who will want to, to use their philanthropic means to support those programs at those universities. At the risk of using a horrendous pun here, I'm going to change gears uh, and talk about your start working in sports. Um, very early on after leaving that OU mafia, you went to Las Vegas motor speedway and unlike a lot of racing facilities, it is not just that one and a half mile trioval. There's a lot going on there. What all is involved with that facility? No, it, it, it was, uh, it, it is a special events venue who happens to host a NASCAR race now two NASCAR races. Um, you know, there's a, a drag strip. So there was two NHRA drag races a year. There was, uh, acres upon acres of paved, uh, paved event space where we would do ride and drive events for new vehicle launches. We would do, you know, you're in the entertainment capital of the world. And so corporate part, corporate, uh, events would come out and they'd want to do a Richard Petty driving experience or a Andretti experience. And so then it was about, well, how do we rent them space to be able to do a business meeting followed by this wine and dine. Um, but I, I think it, at the, at the peak when I was there and it's even more amazing now, I mean, they got the, the Daisy electric Daisy carnival there, which is a three day massive music festival that goes overnight for three straight nights. It, they are a special events venue that happens to, to host NASCAR races. Um, I think we had 1,200 event days when I was there. 
So out of the 365, any day there was three events going on on, on, on the property. Uh, so it was, it, it really showed me the power of being flexible and being able to have a, uh, have a conversation with many different business entities. You know, it wasn't, it was no longer just about, well, let me sell a billboard for an NASCAR race, or let me sell a suite, or let me sell group tickets. Cause we did all of those things. Uh, but it was, you know, once you got through with NASCAR, the, the property was cleaned by Monday and on Tuesday you're hosting a Dodge Viper event. Um, and so it really taught you that, that, uh, you have to be flexible and, and go fish where the fish are and not just, not just be so narrow-minded that I was only going to sell sports. What's kind of the process to get yourself to find those fish? Because some of these events you've listed, they, sound like very different audiences that you're going to be attracting in terms of fans and therefore very different sponsors who are going to want to be aligned with those events. It was, it was a hundred percent, uh, word of mouth. The, the people that you would show a professional experience to at a race or at another one of the events are one degree of separation from somebody else who says, you know, I could take this type of a, uh, event and implement it into a new, uh, a new client. And so the agency business would roll on itself. The, uh, the, you know, let's say Pennzoil, who's, you know, now a title sponsor of the NASCAR race there, uh, of the cup race, you know, Pennzoil would do something at an NHRA race and then say, okay, well, Pennzoil product is used in many different things not related to racing. Let's now host a client event here outside of it, uh, you know, and do it three months later. So if you're not a drag racing fan, you can do come out and, and uh, experience this. And yeah, just by the way, we're 25 minutes away from Las Vegas Strip where everything's fun. So um, that, that was proof positive right there that, you know, what I, what I was delivering for Skip Barber racing, which was a school that would come out and teach people how to drive F five cars. Um, what, what they learned there, they were also the agency of representation for the, the Viper owners club, which was ends up being a, a four day, uh, thousand Viper owners trailer their cars out there and go through a rotation of driving on the super speedway, driving on a road course, going through the, you know, I never would have got the Viper owners club uh, business to come to Las Vegas. If I had not done well for them with the skip barber racing. So it was all uh, word of mouth and getting to know the industry insiders. So we would walk the floor at SEMA and do the things that you would expect from a, from a networking perspective, uh, that anybody would do, but it was, it was having a proof of performance and the networking that, that would go with that. As a outsider to auto racing, it feels like it's a very cluttered marketplace in that every 
car has so many sponsors on it. And then the different series have their own sponsors. And then you guys as the track have your own sponsors. Is it cluttered in a good way or was it a little bit harmful sometimes because there was so much competition within some categories? You got to look at the, you got to look at the time that I was there also, uh, 2005 to 2010, um, 05, 06, 07. He said to answer the phone, uh, <laughs> and set the price and then wish we had set it higher. Uh, and then 2008, 2009, 2010, um, I lost a lot of really good friends in the business. Uh, you know, people who were over leveraged that, could no longer support their business and ended up closing their doors. Um, so the, the answer to your question though is, is, is eternal. You have to find what, how you differentiate yourself either as the salesperson or as the entertainment option. Um, you have to tell that story and, and believe it that what you can offer, nobody else can offer. Um, and then be relentlessly polite in, in how you deliver that and how you get to it. Uh, you know, I spoke to a, a group of really young uh, kids for one of our junior rodeo programs, and they all want to know, well, how do I go find a sponsor for my shirt? You know, and that's the message I kept going back to is you have to be relentlessly polite like understand that everybody you're talking to has too much on their plate and you just have to be relentless uh without being a jerk uh just continually be as polite as possible and if you can do that as a salesperson uh people typically will give you the benefit of the doubt and and want to hear what you have to say how do you learn that fine line relentless to jerk <laughs> um through mistakes you know you 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 have to learn how to not take business personally you know it's funny you you, you try and be a uh a personal a personable salesperson because you you want to establish those relationships and let the people know that you genuinely care if they, their program's successful. Um, but you also can't take it personally when, when their budget dictates that they can no longer be your partner. Um, and so it is not a, it's not a natural thing. It's not a natural feeling to be able to do both of those. Um, but you, you hope that through your successes, you're able to, to uh, keep that positive feeling through all the negatives. Uh, and so that, that's, you know, that's probably, it's just a learned trait. And, and I don't know that anybody ever explained that to me. Um, but, but I've been around enough guys that will hang the phone up, walk into your office and they'll air their grievances to you then. <laughs> You know, but then the person will call them right back and it's like, Hey, yeah, how you doing? And and so it's, it's a different, it's a different skill that I, that I don't think you can learn through anything except for experience. You mentioned 
earlier, one of the important things when it comes to selling is listening. And that to me almost strikes me as counterintuitive because if you're going to sell me, you've got to explain to me why I want to make this investment. What do you mean that by listening being important? Every person that you are pitching or talking to is incredibly, they're so much more passionate than you are about what they do. If they're a business owner, if they're a CMO, if they're a VP of this or, or they're the marketing director, they are so much more passionate about their entity than you ever will be. Um, and so you, you have to listen and they'll give you the answers to the test. Um, there are so many guys and gals that do this for a living that have in their mind that this company needs to be sponsoring this element of our event. And they cannot wait to shove that idea on the table and say, I am so smart. This is what you need to do. This will help you sell more. Um, and if they had paused and simply listened to what the, what the potential client was telling them, they would come to find out that that has nothing to do with why they were willing to take your meeting. Um, and so it's, it is a learned trait to shut up uh, and, and let them give you the answers to the test. It's, sometimes it's harder than others. There are certainly uh, incredibly seasoned veterans who sit on the other side who uh, are not going to give you the answers. They want you to um, bring the million-dollar idea, and then they may take that million-dollar idea and go activate it at your direct competitor. You know, They may say, that's an amazing activation idea. Uh, we just don't believe in what you're doing. Uh, but the competitor across town or in another region, we're going to go activate that idea. Um, and so it, it is, it, it's a balancing act, but you have to listen. They will give you the answers to the test most of the time. And that, you know, that's that personal connection that I talk about. Like if you, if they truly believe that you're in it for their best interest, they'll, they'll feel comfortable in sharing with you um, what they're looking for and and telling you where their scars are is anybody that that is that is done sponsorships and activation and partnerships has scars um, nobody has a 100 percent success rate so they've all had the 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 scars and they'll tell you about it if you get to know them enough um, so listen to what they're telling you your sales career has taken you now you're the Vice President of Business Development for PRCA. What is that organization? Uh, it's not the PBR. Um, so <laughs> that, that's, uh, you talk about scars. Um, so uh, the, the PRCA is uh, about an 80-year-old sanctioning body for professional rodeo. Uh, it, was, it was started as a union effort by some cowboys when they walked out of a rodeo because they didn't feel like they were being fairly treated. Um, so now in its 2021 uh, uh, 
rendition. We are a member organization with 6,000 6, card-carrying members who, in 2019, we sanctioned 732 rodeos across the country. Um, all of that culminates in our crown jewel event, the National Finals Rodeo in Las Vegas, uh, which is a 10-day rodeo uh, worth $10 million. And so there are, there are probably 500 professional cowboys who compete through the year and attempt to qualify, be one of the top 15 in their event to qualify for the NFR. Um, you can, as an athlete, make more money in your 10 days in Las Vegas than you did the other 355 days. So it's a, it's a powerful event. Um, and we are, by our nature, a uh, humble, hardworking group of individuals who have not done the best job of storytelling that we should have done. Um, you know, one of, one of the things that, that, that we do better than anybody, our female athletes are paid the exact same amount that our male athletes are paid. And I, I promise you, nobody knows that, you know, if you win uh, barrel racing at the NFR, you're cashing the same check that the bull riders are or the tie down ropers. Um, but we have to go against our uh, genetic makeup. If you talk about cowboys and the Western lifestyle, they don't like to brag. They don't like to talk about themselves. And so we're at a uh, inflection point to where we are trying to shift that, that perspective. Um, we hired a new CEO three years ago and he, he came out of the corporate world. He was the CMO at Caterpillar. And he came in and made a lot of people uncomfortable because he said, uh, why are we doing this? Or why are we doing that? Um, and people's typical answer was, well, we've always done it that way. And we lost 1% to 2% of our membership every year for a 20-year period. And we finally have rever reversed that trend because we are listening and shifting and changing the way uh, of doing business. The, the Western lifestyle right now um, has never been hotter. You, you look at Yellowstone, um, you look at what Hollywood is investing in the Western genre. Um, you even consider Mandalorian as a space Western. You know, all of these series, all of these uh, movies show that consumers in America have a passion to connect with the Americana of the Western lifestyle. So how do we convince corporate partners that we do have 42 million people who identify, watch, attend, or listen uh, rodeo? And we, we can't wait for other people to tell the story um, because they won't. Um, so that's, that's what we're doing right now. Is, is trying to find non-endemic partners and tell our story through media outlets and, and opportunities to, to support that way of life uh, because, and there are some good people who are amazing personalities that given the opportunity should be household names to those people that want to be a fan of rodeo. So, um, you know, my role is a, business development. That's what we're doing. And, uh, 
2020 was a gut punch, but we took our rodeo from Vegas to Texas because the governor of one of those states was open to having us. The governor of the other state was not. Um, and it was awesome. We pulled it off. We funded a $10 million, $10 million rodeo in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, and, and our athletes appreciated it. And they were still able to keep rodeoing during the year. Um, so for me, I didn't think I grew up around rodeo. I loved it. Uh, I, I don't know which end of the rope to hold. Um, <laughs> but, but I, I wore hats, I wore boots. Um, you know, I grew up in Texas, so it's hard not to be affiliated with it or around it if you want to be. Um, but from my perspective, an opportunity to lead a national sales effort, um, and, and do it for a leadership group that I believe believes the right things. It's exciting. And I hope at the end of a five or however long year run, uh, there's good stories to tell. So there's a lot that it seems happens with the PRCA and, and having 700 events, 6,000 people involved. I think, does a really good job of setting the stage for that. A couple of things I want to drill down on with you. First of all, you talked about these athletes and how, yeah, they can go to the uh, national finals and win more than they made the rest of the year. But getting to that stage has to be quite a challenge to rise to the top of those 6,000 others who are doing the same things. How is it structured to help people progress through with the different circuits? And also a little bit on just, how do they make a living doing it? Cause I understand some of these, you got to pay an entrance fee to even get into some of these rodeos. Yep. You know, the, the traditional format of a rodeo, um, there's a local committee who, who owns that rodeo. When I say owns a rodeo, it's all volunteer based committees that run these rodeos and their, their job is to figure out how much money they need to put into the prize pool to, recruit the best athletes to come to their rodeo. Um, so they say, we're going to do uh, $70,000 or $80,000. So $10,000 for each of the events. And they make that money back by selling tickets, selling sponsorships. Um, but there are, there are what we call our tour rodeos. So there's 60 rodeos approximately in the country that are, the cream of the crop. They pay more money than the other 650 rodeos. Um, so those 60 rodeos are sometimes competing with each other. You know, you get into the uh, June uh, June 15th to, to July 15th. That's called, uh, you know, Cowboy Christmas, Country Christmas, Christmas in July. That's what because that is when these guys will go and they will, they will ride. Uh, they'll hit Vernal, Utah on Wednesday, Colorado Springs on Thursday, uh, Cody, Wyoming on Friday, hoping that one of those three, they've gotten through to the finals. They'll then go ride in the finals on Saturday night. So they've ridden in three or four different rodeos in four days. Um, and so that's why it truly is a pay for pay for play. Now the, the top, the top guys are receiving sponsorship, you know, endorsement money but if you're an up-and-comer you are going to put a hundred thousand miles on your truck in a summer 
and you're going to ride until you can't ride anymore. So it's not for the faint of heart. Uh, but if you can establish yourself and find some success, there is, uh, there's some good money to be had. Uh, but every one of those guys has a ranch and a ranch you have to constantly maintain. So when they have two days off, they go back. They're not just sitting on, on the couch or, or, uh, you know, they are, they're doing rehab on their bodies. They're taking care of their livestock. They are, you know, uh, you know, perhaps they got to bale the hay. They got to do this and that. So all of these, for more majority of these guys and gals, they, there is no off season. Um, you know, just like rodeo, we go December to October, uh, with our rodeos. So it's, it's nonstop. Um, so 6,000 athletes, some of them, are not, you know, instead of playing church league softball because they played baseball in high school, they keep their card and they just go and ride in the three rodeos two hours from their house. Uh, for other guys, it's kind of the, the circuits. So they want to try and win their circuit, their region. And they're going to ride as many in that region so that they can qualify to get to the circuit finals in their region. Um, and then the pros are all over the country. Again, about 500 guys that would probably say that their only source of income is successfully performing at rodeos. There is a whole community that, that has to put these events on. And the Cowboys, my understanding, is just one part of your organization because you guys are involved in so many other pieces of it, from judges to the rodeo clowns to pickup men and yep. even some standards for the treatment of the livestock. How important is having that whole community being in this one organization to making sure that you guys do stay on that mission of providing the best and safest environment for all these people? It, it's a hundred percent true. And that's what makes the PRCA, the, the, the gorilla in the Western industry is because we have the best livestock. We have the best announcers. We have the best, uh, bullfighters. We have the best, all of those different things. And so, yes, in order to be sanctioned as a PRCA rodeo, you have to agree that you're going to use our members to staff all of those, all of those pieces of your rodeo. Um, then the local rodeo committee, they are trying to make more money than they spent because every one of those rodeo committees is a fundraising committee. They all support a local charity. Again, just, just like the story that we don't tell about uh, paying, paying female athletes the same amount as male athletes, um, every one of our rodeo committees writes a check to a local charity. There is no ownership group. There's no uh, shareholders. It is about how much money they can, they can support for a local charity. Right there in your, your backyard, uh, Rodeo Houston, um, they've done half a billion dollars in uh, educational support for kids. That's what, you know, that 20 day rodeo with 20 A-list athletes and 2 million people going to NRG arena and the stock show and the livestock sale, all those things. That's all about scholarship funding for local kids. Every single one of our rodeos is that way. You can subtract the zeros off of it um, you know, the Pikes Peak or Bust Rodeo here in Colorado Springs, 
they raise about seventy to eighty thousand dollars every year for local military charities. So um, that's what that's what makes rodeo tick is that we really are a celebration of community, and we have to figure out how to tell that story. Um, but that, that's that's what's important to every one of these rodeo committees is making sure that they put on the best show by using the best people from the PRCA to help put on that show. And they don't, at the end of the day, sure. It's nice to see the best athletes perform at their event, but for most of those local people, it's about finding a way to raise the most money for the charities that they care about so greatly. You've talked about storytelling and you mentioned listening as being part of, of the process for you with sales as you're coming into this and trying to do that outreach to the non-endemic partners, how are you finding it to go out to someone and, and something that probably might not be familiar to a lot of people uh, in the sports world or in, in the corporate world that may have a, a sweet spot to be involved with the PRCA? It is, you have to find somebody that shares our values um, you know, the, the thing that I cannot overcome is our sweet spot is C and D counties. Um, if, if a corporate entity only cares about hitting metro, major metropolitan areas, they're not going to be a fit for the PRCA. Um, you know, if they care about C and D counties and, uh, those communities and how do you reach those people in something that they care about? Um, then there's a conversation to be had. Um, but it's about values. It's about, uh, the, the individuals at those corporate partners who believe that the values that our consumers hold high, uh, match with their corporate values. And, um, you know, there is a real and uh, a real hurdle for us is uh, animal welfare. And if somebody doesn't want to hear about our statistics on animal welfare, they're not going to listen. Uh, you know, just like we have to listen, we also have to make sure that they're willing, willing to listen to what we say. You know, when we say 99.8% of our animal athletes uh, never experience an injury in the arena, it doesn't matter. Someone will look at it and say, well, I, I believe that you're the mistreatment of your animals. It's just not, it's not an act. It's not a factual statement. Um, but if they don't want to listen, they don't want to listen. Uh, but, but for us, it's about finding people that uh, values have, have maybe not so slowly, I was going to say slowly crept into every corporate decision. That's not, that's probably not true anymore. Uh, Values are a significant part of corporate culture, corporate decision-making. Um, and so finding the companies that value what we value, which is that, that hard work, the never asking for anything that you don't think you deserve, um, you know, people that, that truly pull themselves up every single year and are on uh, razor-thin margins that, if you have a bad year with your land or with your livestock, it, 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 you're one year away from being crippled. And so 
those people will do and overcome everything to the best of their abilities. They want to support the corporate partners who are supporting their entertainment option. Um, and they, a lot of times have a, uh, a better disposable income situation than their counterparts in their communities. But if I compare our consumer to somebody in Dallas, Fort Worth or in Houston or in Chicago, we don't have an attractive consumer. Um, but if you compare them to the people that are spending money in their communities, we have a very attractive consumer. Uh, but that's really hard to put in an introductory email to company A or company B. <laughs> so, so you got to find willing, willing listening partners. Competition is a big piece of the sales business. And, and sometimes it's within your own industry. You mentioned having some scars with PVR. Uh, you know, when you're at Ohio University, you've got another university down the road in Columbus that's competing for that college athletic fandom. Or the you're really going to get me fired up if you start talking about them. <laughs> when it comes to that process of competing against these other places, and I think you used the word differentiation before, what do you do to kind of learn that landscape of who you are going against to put yourself in the best position. You, you can't stick your head in the sand. Uh, you have to also admit who you're not, you know, that, that's the, you have to admit what you don't have. Um, I will, I will not, I will not be selling out arenas in metropolitan areas. And if I try and tell that story that that's what we do, um, I will not be able to find a partner, uh, for the PRCA. Um, I, I could never compete with, um, I could never compete with Ohio state when I was at Ohio. Um, if that's what somebody cared about was a hundred and whatever thousand people that fill the shoe, they didn't care about Southeastern Ohio. They didn't care about the alumni network from Ohio. Uh, I was never going to uh, get them on board. But at the same time, I had to be willing to admit and say, look, if that's what you're looking for, then so be it. Uh, I wish you the best of luck in, in finding that. Um, so it's, it's admitting you have a blind spot or not a blind spot, but a shortcoming in saying, but I can do this, this, and this. I mean, our engagement and our followers on all of our social media will blow almost any other entity out of the water. It's amazing to me when I first started here um, that, that we had percentage points of engagements and not, not tenths of a percentage point in engagements and real zeros in our social followings and uh, people that care so much about our athletes because they truly see themselves in those athletes. Uh, none of us can, none of us can look at LeBron James and say, well, I could see doing what LeBron James does. Um, but you talk about tough Cooper, or Sage Kimsey or Tilden Hooper or Casey field. Um, you look and you stand next to them and you say they have a talent. Um, but 
it was not a purely physical talent. It was a talent that they developed by working hard through years of, of their upbringing. Um, and still sit there and be able to tip my hat to them and say, I get it, man. Uh, I can still be amazed by, by NBA all-stars and enjoy watching basketball games, but it's, it's not, it's not part of a lifestyle. You know, the NBA fans aren't doing it because it's a lifestyle. Rodeo fans are doing it because it's a lifestyle. We started by talking about your education and you, you did get the PhD in, in 2015. In what ways has your education continued though? Even as you've just been now not doing all the book work, but in your career. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's certainly through, I try and listen, uh, I try and listen to podcasts and other things that, that I may not necessarily hundred percent agree with. Um, you know, part of, part of trying to grow your, uh, world understanding is to listen to viewpoints you don't agree with. I mean, there's millions of years of, of, uh, human nature is to surround yourself with a tribe that believes everything you believe. Um, but I, I think that that does not help us, uh, become better, selfishly a better salesperson. I need to understand what makes everybody tick. Um, so I, so I listen to, um, you know, you asked the question, like what, what podcast do you listen to? Man, I don't have any consistent list of podcasts. It's, it's kind of all over the place and what drives me. And I'll listen to a golf podcast cause it's enjoyable. And I think the interview is going to be good, good. I'll listen to Joe Rogan because I think, you know, he'll have an MIT, a uh, professor on who talks about AI and I'll, you know, it's, that's the best part I love about sales is you get to try and become a fake expert in so many different things. Uh, you know, I, I learned the business structure for orthopedic surgeons in Southeast Ohio, you know, and, and, and I learned, uh, you know, the farm and ranch equipment business, and you go to a, you know, to a factory in Mount Pleasant, Texas, and see just the massive scales and learn they're not just creating fencing. They're doing that. That's the most enjoyable part of doing what I do is that I get to be a fake expert. You know, I used to say I, I was fake military when I was at the Air Force Academy and I'm a fake cowboy now. Um, but that's the, the most enjoyable part of doing what I do. You were right on that I am going to ask you about podcasts that you listen to. I do close every episode with the set pieces, the same half dozen questions for each guest. While you might not have podcasts that you're religiously listening to, are there any uh, newsletters that you do get that help you keep informed and, and keep learning on the job? You know, I still listen or I still read the D1 ticker every day. Uh, <laughs> I can't quit. I can't quit uh, the gossip and the, the, the news of of division one athletics that's certainly one that i that i read um sportico is always a good one for me to read and peruse on online um i was going to go to my podcast list and just kind of look at the ones that i have in my library i like the podcasts that are able to have good conversations um you know that are not one topic matter every single day um so, you know, Freakonomics Radio is always a good one for me. 
Um, the uh, Stuff You Should Know podcast, I, I enjoy that. Hardcore History, Dan Carlin's Hardcore History is is something that's totally unrelated to uh, my everyday life. But understanding uh, uh, history is just an important part of, of understanding human connection, you know, the things that, that caused conflict for decades and centuries is real and understanding human nature is part of the sales process. So that's probably why I like listening to some of those. Who are your most valuable follows? The social media posts you don't want to miss. You know, Malcolm Gladwell. Uh, let's, let's pull. Let's pull up Twitter here, <laughs> and and look. Uh, it's funny. You can look at my follows and see they definitely came in groupings of where I was employed. You know, uh, when I was at the Air Force Academy, I followed a lot of uh, military writers. You know, people who wrote for the sure. Military Times and. You know, you start learning who's winning this contract and learning that contract, winning that contract. You know, now I'm in the Western lifestyle, and it's so it's there's personalities that I follow for for those uh, reasons. Um, you know, you can't. I don't feel like you can be in sports and not feel like Darren Ravel puts content out there that's that's at least conversation worthy, uh, and he takes it in the shorts a lot of times because. <laughs> one reason or another, but, but I enjoy what he, what he puts out there as, as contradictory as this probably sounds. I'm a big soccer fan. Okay. <laughs> so I follow a lot of soccer writers. Uh, you know, that's, again, that doesn't probably line up with rodeo or, <laughs> you know, uh, Brene Brown. Um, I, I do, do appreciate some of the messages that she, that she has and uh you need to you can't have all news driven serious things in your feed it's there, there's got to be some stuff that that makes you smile or makes you think all right a, a purely uh a, a purely enjoyment one sports aviation oh yeah so, love that <laughs> That one is so interesting to me. Uh, you know, my dad was a, an airline pilot, and so that's always a fun one. A very niche one, but a, an awesome one. I'm right. a big follower of that one, too. I love that one. What about books? What are a couple of books you recommend to others to read? You know, uh, Harvey McKay, uh, when I was cutting my teeth and trying to figure out how to be a better salesperson, Harvey McKay has several books that really spoke to me. They were not, they were not high level, you know, really make you think reads, but they were straightforward, uh, you know, to the point um, books that, that I really enjoyed, you know, probably the, yeah, dig your well before you're thirsty, you know, that one written in the nineties. And that is just really short chapters about life lessons that he had through, through his career. You know, another, another book that, that I read was Ice to Eskimos um, by John Spolstra. Um, th those two certainly impacted me um, 
as well as um, you know, as well as any of the John John Maxwell stuff. You know, again, it's about being a good person, not getting lost in your your daily battles, but thinking about the the you know the bigger picture, if you will. What would you consider your cheat code or your best life hack? We talked about it. Um, you know, listening. Uh, but there's also a John Maxwell quote that comes to mind is people never care how much, you know, until they know how much you care. If you're not listening and you're not caring about what you're talking about with people, then it comes off disingenuous and there's no quicker way to get run out of the Western industry than somebody feeling like you're a carpetbagger, uh, just there to take their money. What's your favorite sports memory as a kid? My grandfather took me to uh, a Broncos game. He was a season ticket holder. And he took me to a game against the Seattle Seahawks back when they were in the AFC. And uh, John Elway was my idol growing up. Um, And I never played a day of football past seventh grade because it hurt to play football. That sucks. So, (laughs) but uh, he took me to a game and we left the stadium because the Broncos were down seven points with a minute and a half left. And my grandfather hated traffic. He wanted to get on that bus and get out of there as soon as he could. And so we go down and we get on the bus and the Broncos are down and John Elway, as per usual, led them down the field and they scored a touchdown and tied the game and won it in overtime. And I listened to that drive and overtime from a bus outside a mile high stadium. (laughs) So uh, incredibly painful, but it was also one of those things that I'll never forget listening to that, (laughs) listening to that on the little Walkman sitting on the bus and just, you know, there were other people on the bus and it was going crazy, but it was that, that was one of my sports memories as a kid. My final question, do you keep your credentials? And if so, where is that collection? It's in a box in my office. I have, like to think, every one of those. Uh, you know, at some point, my kids will get the box and they'll say, why the heck did dad keep any of this stuff? Uh, no, I, hopefully at some point I have a good way to be able to display it. You know, right now I've got them all hanging on a tie rack. You know, there's probably... 100, 150 of them. Uh, when you work in college athletics for every, every time you go on a road trip, you get a credential. So um, I don't know what that says about me or anybody. It's not, it sounds like you've built an entire podcast based on people's uh, affinity for keeping credentials. I wish I had done it with ticket stubs, but, you know, I, that's harder to hold on to as a ticket stub. It doesn't have a nice lanyard on it that I can hang on a hook. <laughs> I, I actually miss the ticket stubs more than uh, I think I would miss the credentials. Cause for me, a live music fan, it was all the, the concert ticket stubs. And I had them, I had them proudly displayed in a frame and everything. And now it's like, Oh, well, you can't really frame the barcode on right. your phone. It's not the same. No, oh, I, I really appreciate the- Yeah. I did see somebody this week talking about turning ticket stubs into NFTs to where people can still start collecting them again. Mm. Uh, so I do think there's, there's somebody that's out there that's going to make sure that you can still pack rat those tickets. 
Of course, of course. Paul, I really appreciate the time. I enjoyed our conversation, learned a lot from you. And thank you so much for uh, being so forthcoming and joining me here for this episode. Appreciate it, Pete. And uh, we'll look forward to, to listening in the future for sure. A big thank you to Paul for his time to record this episode and to you for listening. If you enjoyed it, please take a moment to leave a rating and review wherever you are listening to help spread the word about credentials only. Don't forget to visit credentialsonly.com for show notes. And while you are there, sign up to join our mailing list so we can slide into your inbox when we have a new episode to share. We are, of course, on social media, so please give us a follow. Thanks to Mike Boucher for editing Credentials Only, which is a Holter Media production.